0: So this week I'm continuing with the Advent theme. The first candle of Advent represents hope. The second one represents peace. Last week I talked about hope. This week I'll talk about peace. And as I pointed out last week, it's interesting because hope is thought of as a virtue in the Christian tradition. In other words, we're responsible for how much hope we have, which is which is often different from you know, the, a, a more modern narrative of, you know, well, I can't be hopeful because I'm not looking at a hopeful future or something like that. And much in the same way, both Christianity and Buddhism would say quite clearly, we're responsible for how peaceful we are. You know, which, which again is kind of a, a, you know, a very different take from the conventional perspective of, you know, I need all these other things to be the case, so I can be at peace. you know why can't I find some peace and quiet? you know this kind of thing. So what does it mean to be peaceful? What does it mean to cultivate peace? I'd say the very first thing is simply knowing how to relax. And while that's simple in, or simple to say. It's funny, we live in a society where people really don't know how to relax, and that's very sad. So I'm going to talk a little about relaxation, and in order to do that, I'm actually going to talk about the nervous system. This is something I've I've talked about before on various occasions. There's parts of the nervous system that we control consciously, and then the parts that we don't control consciously are grouped under something called the autonomic nervous system the autonomic nervous system has two complementary halves, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system is the nervous system that revs us up. It is activated in fight or flight, in stress, anxiety. It's also activated in excitement. Um, The effect that this nervous system has on our body It makes breathing shallow. It accelerates heart rate, dumps a lot of adrenaline into our system. It directs blood flow away from inner organs toward the outer muscles. So the muscles, the outer musculature gets tense. It tends to depress the function of digestion, depress the immune system, depress libido. Activation of the sympathetic nervous system also has the effect of constraining thought, putting us more into a, an either-or kind of mode and, and sometimes into a very, a very rigid sort of black or white kind of mode, you know, this kind of mode of either you do things exactly the way you want, I want it, or you can't be my friend anymore, you know, like this very kind of black and white thinking. Now, by contrast, the parasympathetic nervous system sometimes called the relaxation response does does the exact opposite with parasympathetic arousal what happens is that our breathing becomes slow and deep our heart rate declines our our blood level adrenaline and cortisol drop blood flows toward the inner organs it enhances digestion enhances immune function enhances libido the skeletal muscles tend to be able to relax when we're in um, parasympathetic arousal parasympathetic arousal in parasympathetic arousal the mind becomes more spacious we're able to think more in terms of both and rather than either or we're able to take in other perspectives, we're able to appreciate ambiguity and subtlety and nuance. All this comes online when we activate the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, evolution has designed our bodies so that we experience the most physical and mental well-being when when basically we have a typical typical day of about 10% sympathetic arousal and 90% parasympathetic arousal. You know, in other words, a little bit of exercise, a little bit of getting our heart rate up. You know, and this, this would happen in, in many ancient societies, that there'd be a certain point of the day, that there'd be some exercise of some kind. And then most of the day would be Relaxing. So that, that's the ideal, and that, that's the ideal for which we are designed evolutionarily over, over the course of hundreds of thousands of years. Um, in modern America, I think most people live in sympathetic arousal 100% of the time. I think the sympathetic nervous system is just the, the, the norm to which everyone is accustomed and and parasympathetic arousal is, feels kind of foreign to people. Um, I'll say we live in a society in which I think a lot of people confuse distraction with relaxation. And what I mean by that is, say I'm at work and I have all these stressful thoughts and my mind is going a mile a minute, and even when I come home, I have all these stressful thoughts... And I think, oh, I need to relax. And then I go some do something like play a video game or watch an action movie or listen to loud music. And that, that interrupts my thought loops. It gives me a vacation from my thoughts. So in that sense, it quote-unquote feels like relaxing, but it doesn't actually relax the body. It actually stresses the body even further. You know, any, any kind of relaxation that involves excitement is actually feeding the, the circuitry of the sympathetic nervous system. Now, obviously, a lot with the autonomic nervous system we don't get to choose. It, it runs on automatic pilot, but the one, the one piece over which we have incredible choice, incredible agency, is the breath itself and when we can consciously choose to breathe deeply slow deep breaths that actually engages the parasympathetic nervous system and if we can make a habit of slow deep breathing then we would be then we would build the habit in our body of being in parasympathetic arousal which is to say build the, build the the visceral understanding of what it is to relax. And so I think that's just a very important lesson for everyone in the modern age to have, you know. That, you know, and of course, it, you have to remember to do the deep breathing. Deep breathing is something we can be doing when we're driving, when we're sitting in a meeting, when we're at our desk, you know, almost almost every situation in life we can be doing deep breathing. But we need to remember to do that. So relaxing, learning how to relax, learning, learning to engage the parasympathetic nervous system, that's one big step toward peace. And I think if people just did that, they'd feel a lot more peaceful, you know. Another part of peace, I would say, has to do with mental control. And I think the way I would frame it is, I think it's vastly underestimated how much distress we cause, we cause ourselves when we're unfocused and distracted. You know, unfocused and distracted feels like, it, you know, it feels, I imagine, neutral to most people. Like people don't actually realize that they're actually causing themselves misery when they have an undisciplined mind. because the the mind of its very nature multiplies all it multiplies worries, it multiplies disaster thinking it were it you know how can I say we can't logically think our way into bliss, but it's actually trivially easy to think our way into misery, <laughs> you know just the nature of the mind um and there's a profound kind of peace that comes just just with being able to have enough mental discipline to hold inner silence for a little while. You know, to hold any stretch of inner silence um, is extraordinarily peaceful. And, and to be able to walk around with inner silence is incredibly peaceful. Um, the world is hungry for people who, who can carry inner silence you know Some of the deeper aspects of peace have to do with the lower 3 chakras and kind of letting go in various ways in the lower 3 chakras. So the third chakra concerns boundaries and having good boundaries are very important for being peaceful. You know, having good boundaries means you know, I'm responsible for what I feel. I'm not taking on energy from anyone else. You know, I'm not letting myself be impacted by anyone else. Um, and how can I say, you know, it certainly Buddhism encourages us to have a heart of compassion. And I think the thing that is not, that's implicit in the message of Buddhism, and, but not stated ex- explicitly i mean they didn't they didn't really need to state it explicitly in those days but that it's important to have compassion with good boundaries you know in other words i can be caring to somebody else i can listen to somebody else's story of misery and care for them and wish them the best and wish them blessings you know give them if they're looking for advice give them advice you know this kind of thing but i'm not if i have good boundaries i'm not sucked down i'm not i'm not dragged down to their position also you know i can i can maintain my own well-being and still be with them in their pain you know i remember once somebody telling me it was it was an account of paul ekman who is he's one of the um, one of the world's experts on the facial display of emotion. And he was part of a team of neuroscientists who was invited to to an audience with the Dalai Lama. So they were spending a few days in Dharmasala with the Dalai Lama. And of course, part of the time they were meeting with the Dalai Lama, but part of the Dalai Lama's life is every day he has to receive pilgrims. And Paul Ekman was just watching him. And there'd be pilgrim after pilgrim coming up to the Dalai Lama and you know they would be telling about the you know some of them would be telling about these horrible treks across the Himalayas, and we you know we lost two of our children in this, and you know, it was horrible and 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 these the pilgrims their faces would just be showing such grief or such such worry or you know all these strong emotions, and in that moment, the Dalai Lama was totally mirroring, like his face was full of grief or full of worry. Then the conversation was over and he'd go back to being smiling again, you know. And Paul Ekman said that he, he just watched him and he said during the course of a day, he saw every single human emotion run across the Dalai Lama's face in the course of that. You know. And he says, you know, the odd thing is, and it, it's true, if you look at the Dalai Lama, he has the facial muscle tone of a 20-year-old. Like he doesn't look his age, you know, what happens with most of us, we go through a very limited range of emotions and then subtly the muscles that we don't use start to atrophy and then, you know, eventually, you know, some people just, they wind up with a single emotion by the single emotion on their face by the time they're old, you know, that kind of thing, um the Dalai Lama exercises every muscle in his face because he allows every emotion, every human emotion to find expression, you know. And there's something very powerful about being able to do that, to be able to feel every emotion and yet have good boundaries, you know. He he wouldn't be able to do his job if he didn't have excellent boundaries also, you know. So that's the contribution to peace from the third chakra, having good boundaries. The second chakra, I think what I'll highlight here, is control. We don't have peace when we want to control things. You know? And of course, there are some things that we need to control. Some things, you know, self-control is a very good thing. You know? Um... But then there's all the unhealthy control. Want to control situations? Want to control other people? You know, all kinds of things. Want to control our, our you know, of all kinds of events in our life. Um, the more we can let go, the more peace we'll have. And I'll just say on a personal note. Um, I really feel like I'm getting a master class in my own control issues as I lose control of my own hands, you know <laughs> It's amazing how much control is tied up with the hands. so that's the second chakra the uh, and I, I think in general, I'll say the healthy function of the second chakra is really when we can, as it were, go with the flow, you know. And there, there's something about, there's something tremendously peaceful about just being, about letting go and letting the uncontrollable flow of life do whatever it's going to do, you know. For the first chakra, I'll, I'll highlight one thing that helps a sense of peace is a sense of deep belonging. Really being able to drop in, relax in, and occupy a, a sense of deep belonging in the world, belonging in this body, belonging in this life, belonging in whatever roles or activities I have in my life, belonging to the people I care about, you know. Um, really, the more we can rest in this deep belonging, there, there's a, a deep kind of peacefulness in that, so earlier I talked a little about mental discipline as being conducive to inner peace, being able to hold inner silence, um, and of course, Buddhism has all kinds of teachings about how the more the more subtly we cleanse our mind the more subtly we develop mindfulness and right concentration and all that the closer we'll be to peace Um, so in that vein I'm going to conclude by reading a section this is from a, it's actually a Zen writing it's written by the third Zen patriarch uh, sometimes known as the Xin Ming or the verses on the faith mind so this is just the, the first few lines I'll read it and then share the quote sheet The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything to set up what you like against what you don't like is a disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is uselessly disturbed. So an extremely high ideal articulated there, but certainly something to experiment with. I Because I think we all have moments, at least. I, I certainly can't, claim to live 24-7 without any preferences of any kind, you know. But there are moments, at least, when I am in a balanced place and, you know, maybe I'm watching a, a situation unfold and, you know, I have no dog in the fight and I I have no preference either way. Um, and there is something peaceful, incredibly peaceful, about just being in that place of witnessing and allowing life to unfold, you know, and just, just to notice that. So I'll share the quote sheet. Let's see. So at the top I have the, the quote from the third Zen patriarch, the Xinxing Ming. A couple quotes from the Bible. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. That's in the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of John, he said, "Peace I leave you; my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you do I give to you. Let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, let them not be afraid." There's something profound about that. That the peace that comes from the sacred is not peace as the world understands. St. Francis of Assisi said, While you are proclaiming peace with your lips, be careful to have it even more fully in your heart. Rumi said, All disquiet springs from the search for quiet. Look for disquiet, and you will come suddenly on a field of quiet. There's kind of a paradox there, and I think it very much has to do with capacity. The more we have capacity for seeking the disquiet, the more more we can be at peace with what is. Another Christian saint, St. Francis of Sales, said, Never be in a hurry. Do everything quietly and in a calm spirit. Do not lose your inner peace for anything whatsoever, even if your whole world seems upset. Very simple, very wise advice. The Native American leader, Black Elk, said, Peace comes within the souls of men when they realize their relationship, their oneness with the universe and all its powers, and when they realize that at the center of the universe dwells great spirit and that this center is really everywhere. It is within each of us. Carl Jung said, we must be able to let things happen in the psyche. For us, this is actually an art of which very few people know anything. Consciousness is forever interfering, helping, correcting, negating, and never simply leaving the simple growth of the psychic processes in peace. It would be simple enough if only simplicity were not the most difficult of all things. A couple from Sri Nisgardata, That which cannot change remains. The great peace, the deep silence, the hidden beauty of reality remains. While it cannot be conveyed through words, it is waiting for you to experience for yourself. He also said, You will receive everything you need when you stop asking for what you don't need. A very interesting challenge there. Dag Hammarskjold, who was Secretary General of the United Nations, said, Never, for the sake of peace and quiet, deny your own experience or conviction. Swami Satchi said, Any kind of expectation creates a problem, We should accept, but not expect. Whatever comes, accept it. Whatever goes, accept it. The immediate benefit is that your mind is always peaceful. The Christian mystic Thomas Merton said, May we all grow in grace and peace and not neglect the silence that is printed in the center of our being. It will not fail us. And I, really, I love that one because there really is a very powerful silence printed at the center of our being. A John Shaw said, it's simple. Living a virtuous life makes the heart peaceful. You know, it it's actually a really good test for us. Like what attitudes or what what ways of behaving in the world make me more peaceful or less peaceful? What attitudes make me more peaceful or less peaceful, you know? Sri Kriyananda said, you will find peace not by trying to escape your problems, but by confronting them courageously. You will find peace not in denial, but in victory. A couple from Thich Han: Peace is all around us, in the world and in nature, and within us, in our bodies and in our spirits. Once we learn to touch this peace, we will be healed and transformed. It is not a matter of faith, it is a matter of practice. And I I will echo, there is something extraordinarily healing about touching peace. He also said, people have a hard time letting go of their suffering. Out of fear of the unknown, they prefer suffering that is familiar. You know, it's a really good question. What are the ways that I am holding on to my suffering? from Robert Persig in his, his famous book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle, as in other tasks, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from surroundings. When that is done, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions, and right actions produce work which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. A couple from Marion Woodman. She said, Claiming the unswept corners of our psyche leads us to compassion for ourselves and for others. Knowing that we have done our best and it simply wasn't enough opens our hearts to other human beings whose best likewise has failed. The mind has its logic. The heart alone can know wisdom, bridge chasms, make peace. She also said, people who have something to hold on to can relax. People with nothing have to hold on very tight. The sense of that there is really being deeply connected to yourself. If I have that authentic connection to myself, I can relax. If I don't have that, I have to hold on, I have to control. Joanna Macy said, As far as Buddhism is concerned, I find that Western Buddhists go for peace of mind, and that is such an inadequate response. Very challenging there. Anthony DeMello says, Those who seek to protect their egos... To those who seek to protect their egos, peace brings only disturbance. And there's something very wise there because part of arriving at deep peace is a kind of letting go of the ego, which is hard to do. The Christian mystic, Henry Nouwen Did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I say words of healing? Did I let go of my anger and resentment? Did I forgive? Did I love? These are the real questions. I must trust that the little bit of love I sow now will bear any fruits here in this world and in the life to come. The Dalai Lama says, I believe all suffering is caused by ignorance. People inflict pain on others in the selfish pursuit of their happiness or satisfaction. Yet true happiness comes from a sense of inner peace and contentment, which in turn must be achieved through the cultivation of altruism, of love and compassion, and the elimination of ignorance, selfishness, and greed. Wayne Dyer said quite simply, you have everything you need for complete peace and total happiness right now. Jack Kornfield said, Peace requires us to surrender our illusions of control. We can love and care for others, but we cannot possess our children, lovers, family, or friends. We can assist them, pray for them, wish them well, yet in the end their happiness and suffering depends on their thoughts and actions, not on our wishes. George Firestein said, So long as we are in conflict with our body, we cannot find peace of mind. Very straightforward. Eckhart Tolle said, Surrender to grief, despair, fear, loneliness, or whatever form the suffering takes. Witness it without labeling it mentally. Embrace it. Then see how the miracle of surrender transmutes deep suffering into deep peace. Ajahn Brahm says, Don't try to change life, but change the way you look at it. Make peace with this moment. Be kind and be gentle to yourself. That's so important. Be kind and be gentle to yourself. Michael Cooley says, True freedom arises when you do not want anything from anyone else, and so from this fearless state, you will be at peace with yourself and all beings. This is the beautiful gift you will bring to the world, by letting go of the addictions of self, one less being demanding that life will always please and satisfy them. And finally, Mark and Angel Chernoff said, happiness is letting go of what you think your life is supposed to look like right now and appreciating it for everything that it is.